Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Canadian Tire, it's been on a tear this year. It's been acquiring brands ranging from lawn care to sporting goods. And the iconic retailer, it's now pushing into the clothing business with a nearly $1 billion acquisition of outdoor clothing company Helly Hansen. So today, retail insider's Craig Patterson, he's going to break down this acquisition strategy for us on today's show. And He'll provide some insights on Alibaba's foray into Canada and the ban on single-use plastic straws here in the city of Vancouver. A little later on, we're going to discuss the EU's new general data protection regulation. These new privacy regulations are some of the toughest in the world and even apply to Canadian firms that want to do business within the European Union. But BIB reporter Patrick Blennerhatz is going to fill us in on what it involves. But first, let's talk to retail insiders Craig Patterson. Walk into the clothing section of a Walmart or a Loblaw store and you'll find products purposefully arranged in a way to showcase those companies' in-store brands. And it's a strategy that Canadian Tire is also adopting. The retailer has been on an aggressive acquisition tear ever since January, most recently buying outdoor clothing maker Helly Hansen for nearly $1 billion dollars. Retail Insider's Craig Patterson, he joins us to discuss what this strategy means, as well as other big news making wave in retail. Craig, you're the editor-in-chief over at Retail Insider. I should have mentioned that first, but you're calling us from Toronto. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Helly Hansen, what's the value here of Canadian Tire having its in- its own in-store clothing brand? Uh, it's an interesting move because they kind of already do. They've got marks and... Uh, uh, you know, for them to have taken on Helly Hansen, it looks like they're looking for a brand that has some international recognition that aligned with Canadian Tires, I guess you say, brand identity, uh, to a degree anyways, and, uh, you know, is looking at taking this and making it a bit more expansive. I think it's more revenue play than uh, than anything else, but I think that they've got an opportunity to take the brand global, although I don't know if that's going to be in any way with Canadian Tire itself globally. In terms of their in-store experience, though, Craig, I mean, I was in the Canadian Tire the other day, and not to be too impolite, but it's not, how do I put it? It's not a gorgeous vista of in-store experience. It's not a Nordstrom, for example? It's definitely not that, Um, but it is, you know, it is Canadian. Um, (laughs) What what do you think they're trying to achieve here? Um, That's actually a good question. I I was scratching my head a bit with this one as well. Um, Canadian Tire is definitely upping its game in retail. Uh, a few of their stores now are being renovated and in actually almost a Nordstrom-like way, not quite obviously to the same quality as, say, the one at CF Pacific Centre, but um, I know that in Edmonton they had a prototype that was two stories high and uh, at South Edmonton Common, and uh, I was recently in one in downtown Toronto that was also renovated quite nicely. So, you know, they've got smoother ceilings and better fixtures and whatnot. It doesn't look like a warehouse. It looks like a real store. So, but as far as Helly Hansen, um, you know, it, it seems like a brand that could be rolled out, uh, you know, across different uh, Canadian Tire banners even. I mean, that might be one of the strategies, but also this could be, you know, the beginning of saying, well, you know, we'll put Helly Hansen stores in Asia and in Europe and, uh, you know, or, you know, expand that store base. I think that this is kind of, uh, you know, what they're looking at. And they may have just identified this as a global brand with a lot of potential that was living up to its potential. Does it have other brands, do you think, that make some sense to have these significant store-within-a-store type of situations? 
I think so. Um, I think with retail competition continually, you know, increasing, it does make sense to have brands that are exclusive, uh, or at least that you know can be distributed uh, in a meaningful way within retailers. Uh, you know, be it private label or otherwise. Um, you know, Aritzia is an example where they've got other women's brands in their stores, but. I think now basically, you know, their stores are made up primarily of their own brands, which, you know, is smart because no one else is going to have them really in theory uh, unless they're distributed. So, you know, having this in-house brand or having a brand that you own is a great way of, uh, you know, operating and not having your competitors having the same brand at the very least. Well, and you mentioned earlier is a bit of a revenue play, but I also see them having the ability to cut out the middleman to a certain degree. They have their own brand that they own, and it's going to go directly into the pockets uh, of their own you know, company as soon as somebody goes to the checkout line. That's right. I mean, if the Helly Hansen brand is going to succeed, then Canadian Tire is going to make money from it. And they're not going to have a retail middleman. They, are, they will own you know whatever profit margins they can make based on you know sales. So... Uh, you know, I'm sure they ran the numbers and said this is a good idea and, you know, move forward with buying the Helly Hansen brand. But a billion bucks, you know, or whatever it costs to buy, it was close to a billion dollars. That's a lot of money. So, yeah, do you think uh, it's worth that be- much, though? Like, that was the question I had because I, I think it is a recognizable brand, so it's hard for me to determine. But it, does it seem a little steep to you? No, I didn't recognize it that much. I mean, I'm certainly I've been familiar with the brand for a couple of decades, but. I didn't know it was a billion-dollar brand. Yeah. I really, I would have probably pegged it at a lot less personally, but obviously it's something they know that I don't. Well, it it might be something they know that you don't, but do they know the clothing business in order to have any kind of a strategy for the acquired company, or or do you think this is just a, a play where they buy the management team, they buy the product line, they buy their strategy? Well, given, you know, if you look at the bigger Canadian Tire Company, you know, if you look at FGL Sports uh, and look at Marks, I mean, they may be drawing from their, you know, wisdom in those areas. And, uh, you know, there's certainly a peril in those areas. I know that also, uh, you know, FGL Sports is about to launch, um, I think, in a week or two, their very first children's-only store. So there's some real interesting, innov- and it'll be in the suburban Toronto, there'll be some really interesting innovation uh, coming out of these companies here. You know, they're coming out of all directions, you know, be it uh, sporting goods. Uh, they opened their first, you know, women's-only sporting goods store in Calgary, and they're doing kids now. Uh, you've got Helly Hansen at one end, and then you've got Marks, which, you know, again, with those stores, they're trying to renovate those and elevate the brand in a bit of a meaningful way as well. And funny enough, Edmonton was their pro- prototype again. They, they uh, renovated and expanded the West Edmonton Mall store and put shopping stores for Marks. And uh, Helly Hansen could end up being, you know, a real meaningful brand within that type of brand environment as well. So perhaps, you know, this would work for uh, FGL banners as well as, you know, Marks as being a, a shopping store in an even more meaningful way than it is now. Uh, for talking about a company that's really spreading its tentacles around the globe, Alibaba, they're setting up its first Canadian office here in Vancouver. And right now, the strategy isn't necessarily that they want you know us Vancouverites to be buying and purchasing items through Alibaba. They really want to push the local companies to be offering their own goods to the Chinese market. What potential is it for you know, a lot of these maybe small businesses, even larger firms, offering their own items through Alibaba and, and just the potential we have here in Canada to use this platform? One thing I can say, uh, I think Alibaba's got big things planned for Canada. I'm actually meeting with the head of Alibaba Canada at the beginning of June. We're going to be having uh, lunch. I better make sure the restaurant isn't under renovation. I'm, I'm not kidding about that. <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> sure. I, I, I better walk over and have a look because I know that they just closed part of the part of Paul Renfrew. But, um, you know, we're going to be meeting and discussing a few things. And uh, I think that Alibaba has some big plans for Canada. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it remains to be seen. They're being pretty quiet about it right now. But, but definitely, you know, they are looking for space and they're staying in Vancouver. And I suspect... Uh, not just Vancouver. I, I think that, you know, probably they'll be looking at multiple Canadian cities, depending on you know, if distribution or, you know, otherwise they're looking for some sort of presence. I mean, they may look at Montreal for the Quebec market. Uh, you know, Toronto is very much a headquarters city and for a lot of companies and, uh, you know, that do business in Canada. So it would make sense probably to have something in Toronto. But, you know, Vancouver is much closer to China uh, geographically and uh, has a real great uh, base of workers, you know, that isn't already strained, I guess you'd say, by being employed with other industries that are, you know, growing in an explosive fashion in Vancouver right now. But it's interesting that they're choosing Canada over the United States in order to have uh, uh, its next step in terms of expansion. Yeah, I mean, Canada is a welcoming market generally. I'm not sure if the United States, if there's that perception right now. I mean, perhaps it should be more so than it is, but it is interesting that, you know, and it's not unprecedented. I mean, a few companies have definitely looked at Canada and said, you know, this is a, a good gateway to North America. It's, you know, a little bit of a softer United States. Uh, uh, you know, if you can make it in Canada and get established, there's, you know, a better possibility, I think, of being able to make that leap over into the United States, especially when Americans see that, you know, a company's actually bypassed them. I mean, that right there might be a PR move. Uh, and that's more of a guess, but... You know, I think, you know, Canada is a better market than people realize. And, you know, it's got a very favorable international reputation. So this probably shouldn't be much of a surprise. But is it safe to say that Amazon is probably taking notice of, I guess, Alibaba's entry to a city like Vancouver? I think so. Um, you know, Amazon has just leased some more space in Vancouver at the post office. Um, you know, they've got, I think, uh, growth plans for Canada. Uh, you know, they... Or maybe might open an HQ2 in Toronto. Who knows? That's just a rumor, of course. But, you know, Toronto's definitely in the running for that. Uh, I, I think that we're going to see some incredible e-commerce competition. And, uh, you know, Amazon is really looking to dominate in a lot of ways. But so is Alibaba. And I, I think the gloves are off and there's going to be some interesting international competition. But you got to ask, where's the follow going to be, um, you know, in terms of retail? I mean, it's beneficial on one end that, you know, uh, other brands and retailers are able to go onto the platforms, uh, you know, be it Alibaba or Amazon. But uh, on the flip side, you know, they, they become part of that platform and that experience and not their own. So I'm not sure if it's always in the brand's best interest to you know, go to a third party uh, player like that. But ultimately, strategically, maybe that's the best way to go, uh, you know, especially as these behemoths, you know, take over the world in, in terms of e-commerce and even in retail generally. Well, Craig, just very quickly, uh, we've got a bit of an interesting story going on in the city of Vancouver. Uh, Council has voted in principle to ban single-use plastic straws, and uh, it brings up a lot of questions about... And foam cups. And and foam cups and and containers. Takeout containers. Yeah, so... It's going to be like a very big boom in the dry cleaning business of all these people that have suddenly (laughs) big piles of mustard and relish all over their pants, you know, from dropping hot dogs anyway. But that's, that's the question though, is the impact that it's going to have on a lot of the uh, industries here. I I think a lot of people are talking about bubble tea shops, especially, you know, and like, what are they supposed to do? And I've been to, there's a good new restaurant on main street uh, and they're serving uh, paper straws. Yeah. And they, I have to be honest, they kind of sucked. Like they got really soggy within a very quick period of time. And it's just, 
not really the same and it didn't really work for me. But, you know, I don't know, Craig, I, I mean, are, are people going to have Someone's to figure gonna, out? Yeah, they have to buy a, buy a metal straw for Christmas as a Christmas <laughs> gift. <laughs> what I've always wanted from Santa. Just, yeah. yeah, very Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, you can cut your tongue on those, I heard. That's uh, not even the safest option, I think, because, you know, it's metal, right? And it can be yeah. sharp unless they're able to make it less sharp. But that's a really good question. I mean, I was thinking about that this morning as well, you know, just kind of contemplating it. I mean, when you go for a cup of coffee at Starbucks in Vancouver and you want it to go, I guess you pay a fee. I don't know what that accomplishes other than maybe a fee for recycling. I have no idea. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. It's another, but, right, you know. Yeah, another another wonderful idea. Hey, listen, uh, here here's the math. Let's let's play math together, okay? The mm-hmm. city of Vancouver claims that each month, each month, seven million plastic straws wind up in the garbage. Okay, so let's let's work that out. That means that for every person in the city, everyone, mm-hmm. baby to grandpa, sure. ten straws, a ten month. straws a month. No, yeah. okay, so. What do you think? We have three of us here. We have four of us, including Craig on the line. Do you go through 10 straws a month? What do you think? Maybe one. Right. Yeah. So who? Oh, who? I, don't, I don't know if I should answer that. Uh-oh. I, dr- I, drink, I drink out of a straw in my office. Oh, uh, do you? I'm feeling, I'm feeling guilty here. I'm one of those people that's going to buy a metal <laughs> You're straw. the reason. I, yeah. But hey, you, he's but, in Toronto. But you're in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably, you're probably yeah. giving someone in some city councilor in <laughs> Toronto an idea here listening to the podcast. Oh, I hope you don't mean to smoke crack. No, no, uh, no. But- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's a whole other thing, yeah. Welcome to Toronto. Yeah. I, I, I disbelieve that number. It's a little uh, bit come, of a leap. Come on. Yeah. Seven million straws a month. That means every, th- every three days you have a plastic straw. Do you think, straw restaurants, that- do you, do you think Vancouver's robust, robust restaurant industry uh, – might have something to do with this. I mean, there are a lot well, of tourists. There's a lot of businesses. Yeah, but but really, a lot of bubble tea. Well, a lot of bubble tea places, but honestly, <laughs> that's a lot of straws. Yeah, I mean, maybe at some of the clubs, but I've noticed like, and, and I, my my clubbing days behind me now, but the few times, the, a lot of them have gotten rid of the straws already. Yeah. So, like, I think a lot of the, the oh. businesses are already kind of taken upon themselves to reduce. So, I I I, 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 I do wonder. I want some evidence of the seven yeah, nine straws. Yeah. I just, you know, like that's that's kind of like saying four fifths of us take a bicycle to work every day, like, well, like stuff like that. I mean, every like, day, every day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but uh, Craig, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, editor in chief at RetailInsider.com. Up next, we're going to have a discussion on the new EU data protection rules with Patrick Blennerhassett. On May 25th, businesses in the European Union and around the world are going to have to comply with the EU General Data Protection Regulation. This is a wide-ranging and comprehensive piece of legislation aimed at protecting individual privacy with rules around personal data collection. It also gives regulatory authorities more power to take action against businesses that breach these laws. BIV reporter Patrick Blennerhassett joins us now with more on this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, did you share any data on the way over here? I did try not to, yeah. yeah. I sent some text out. <laughs> it's it's funny because now I'm, I'm much more cognizant of what I'm doing online and what I'm Isn't typing. Isn't that good at long last? I think it is, Wait, yeah. We were, all, we were all, like, I think for a while quite 
unconscious about it. I feel like、mm-hmm. we we went blind into it,、yeah. and we, we had no idea. And now we're starting to sort of wake up and say, this data is not only valuable to myself; it's valuable to companies, it's valuable to countries. So, yeah, this is. I think this is interesting. What the European Union is doing is because this is setting the precedent, and this is kind of sort of the first shot across the bow. Because this is basically、um, for consumers; it's not for the private corporations, it's not for the companies, and it brings in what everybody is basically terming active consent. So up until then, basically the Large companies like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Airbnb, all these companies that collect your data—they've been working under the gills of sort of passive consent. That I don't know if you ever saw that South Park episode about the iTunes clicking on it, and nobody ever actually reads those things. They've been sort of using that as a way to sort of get around. Have you、it. ever read that Apple agreement? You ever tried? <laughs>、no. I tried once, <laughs> and I, I think I got like a page. Be honest now.、Uh, okay, maybe I didn't. No, no, I may have glanced over it, but so this is switching it to where、um, you know there's there's sort of five tenants, and I guess we could sort of sort of run through them, and then maybe we'll chat about each each one of them.、Uh, the first is the right to be informed. So internet users who hand over personal data have the right to know how it will be used, how long it will be kept, and whether it might be used outside of the European Union. And when we talk about right to be informed, does that mean you can inform people with a two hundred page terms of agreement, or does it have to? No, be and that's the thing is that the onus is now going to be on the companies and the corporations to prove that they're not simply just waxing poetic or and, flooding you or with flooding a you with document. That. Yeah, right. so. Yeah. That's different than the way it used to be because now, if something does go wrong and it goes to the court, the judge's onus is basically going to fall on the side of the consumer. Where you said, "Look, you had to show this person that you were actively informing them, not just spamming them with, you know, regulations and click here and sign here." So that's that's really interesting because that'll probably start a wave of of lawsuits in the EU as as that one rolls out. So. Um, the second one is right to access, correct, and erase data. So users will be able to transfer their data to another service provider or receive it themselves in a usable format. So as we're seeing now, you can get your information off of Facebook. You can download it as a package.、Um, you can see your own analytics and how your information is being collected. What type of information is being collected?、Um, whether or not a lot of people are actually going to do this. Um, you know, well, no, I think it's people, nice to have though. The、nice、more the more conscious you are, I think, of the data that you're sharing, the more likely you are to、um, tend to it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think what this is also、uh, perhaps preceding is an actual opportunity for you to parcel your own data,、mm-hmm. hang on to it, and then move it from place to place to place. Yeah, and essentially own it. Yeah. And the other thing is that this also gives the opportunity if you'd like to sell your data. So you can basically take your data from one company and go to another company and sell it, which gives you sort of this active sort of consent model where you can. I don't know. You know, you're selling your soul in a way, right? Do you think that this is going to? Change the way companies behave if they have to be very clear about what they're doing, or do they still have a lot of power? Because I mean, we all know what Facebook does in some instances, and yet、yeah. we still subscribe. I think the interesting thing is that this is going to change the way business is done in the European Union, and obviously Brexit is going to play into this, and and whether or not the UK opts out. But the, 
the interesting, probably the most fascinating thing is that a lot of these companies are not based in the EU. You got all the social media giants are sort of in Silicon Valley. And a lot of the tech companies that are collecting data are based out of California. And from what I've heard is that California is going to be paying very very close attention to how well, this rolls out. Well, you have to in out. North America. Because yeah. ultimately, you know, I think I've said it a couple of times before, it's like fashion, right? It starts in Europe and eventually comes over <laughs> to North America. Yeah. If, if, this is the, uh, if this is the route we're all going to end up taking mm-hmm. at some point, it pays right now to pay attention to it. Definitely. So number three, this is a, probably the most interesting one. The right to be forgotten. You're just yeah. asked that they no longer appear in searches, although this is... Now, this, we've had that for some time in the year. Yeah. They, so they've actually updated it. And they, what they did was actually softened it a little bit because I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to balance it against the public's right to know, which is a, a pretty important thing. So if you actually commit a crime or you do something bad that you know besmirches your own character... Um, you can't go on and get that erased. Yeah. But if there's no basis to it, like let's say it's a meme that says, you know, Patrick's overweight or something like that, which has no basis in reality. Although I should eat Haley, a little less. Haley, you and I, got, we've got to stop doing that. Get, off camera or yeah. off. But, <laughs> but, you know, uh, listen, uh, there's no secret that in a news organization, we get asked all the time by people. Yeah. They say, look, um, this was an old, this is an old story about me. Mm-hmm. It depicted me in a particular way. I've changed. I want you to take that story down. Yeah. What the EU is not saying is is that the story would be taken down and erased. It just means that it has to be taken off of a search engine. Yeah. Uh, so that you can't actually easily find it and it yeah. doesn't get propelled to you through some sort of alert. It's still there. I mean, it, the right to be forgotten is still a, you know, there's still... You're not truly forgotten. <laughs> You're, <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah, you just yeah. put out a put out a site. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think that's the distinction you make there, Kirk. Is that it's ta- it's being taken off the indexes that the search engines use. I mean, a good example is there's a professor in Vancouver. I won't go into any details. When you search his name, the top video that comes up is him crossing allegedly crossing the picket line during the worker strikes. And there's no basis to this. He wasn't actually doing that. He was going back to the office to get some books. Somebody had a YouTube cam- or a video and put it up on YouTube and they wouldn't take it down. So that's the, the a good example of where something like that would be removed. The video would probably stay up on YouTube, but when you search that professor's name, it wouldn't be the top hit. So it's kind of like a, <clears throat> I want to say win lose for the person because ultimately you wouldn't, nobody wants that video up altogether. But if it's not on Google, it's kind of not on the internet, right? Like that's the way things are these <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, no, so. and, and I think that that's fair. Um, it's, it doesn't erase history mm-hmm. when that history is still uh, factual. Of course, if, if in fact it isn't factual, if it's defamatory, you, you do have recourse to try to get material taken off the internet. Yeah. And, apologies expressed and on it as well mm-hmm. uh, so it's not you're, you're not without your means it's just that it's it's the search engine optimization stuff that i think people find really annoying um, because it can actually hound you for really for the rest of your life unless you have other things written and said about you yeah. or that you create that are going to somehow uh, layer on top of that i always have a like I know, Kirk, are you on Wikipedia? Yeah. I've got a short Wikipedia page, and it literally just appeared up one day. Somebody in Toronto wrote it after one of my my nonfiction book came out. 
I can't edit it. I can't uh, oh, you add can't to it. it. I can't delete from it. No. Wikipedia knows. Wikipedia, but it is, <laughs> I will say it is correct, but it does feel as if it's a little bit of an invasion where it was like, I never consented to have this. And it's always really high when you search my name. So it's like, I, I think I've definitely sort of experienced a very small dose of that where you feel as if, you know, there's outside forces that can have an impression on when, your digital life. When I was the ombudsman at the CBC, there was actually a, a really good case of a uh, right to be forgotten. And it was a woman who had witnessed a bit of police, not brutality, but, but uh, police roughing up somebody mm-hmm. at a street corner who had gone through uh, one of these four-way stop signs. And so she witnessed that. And uh, and called the radio station, called the CBC, and they brought her on the next morning to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so she thought that that was as far as it would go. But what she didn't realize was that, of course, they were going to write a story about her and put it online. Um, and so her name was in the story, of course, because yeah, she, yeah. she didn't do this anonymously. Mm-hmm. Well, look, she's she has a unique last name, and um, and she's in a business where uh, she was, she was a, uh, I think, part of an architecture firm. And at one point, the architecture firm started saying, you know what, We're, this is losing us business. Wow. Because nobody wants to do business with us if it appears as if we're going to be, um, I don't know, uh, complaining about the policing in our city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she wanted the story taken down. Wow. Because she said, I did not realize that in going in and talking to the radio station, I was going to have an online story written. Mm. And the CBC's answer was, well, what she should do is go out and hire a public relations firm or a, or a search engine optimization group yeah, yeah. To, to put a bunch of other things on the internet about her that would supersede this and essentially bury it to like the second or third page of a Google search, which as we know is, I don't know how many times you've gone to a third page of a Google search. I, yeah, exactly. I can't remember the last yeah, time. Yeah. So, so, the, so that's... That's the kind of dilemma that people mm-hmm. have, which is that they feel like they were not necessarily giving consent to everything that they did, and they'd really like you to, out of you know, out of kindness, take it down. Yeah. And the CBC says, no, we we don't erase history. We, we can't erase history. She said it. She said it publicly. She applied her name to it. She, you know, all of the things that you would do journalistically. Yeah. So you can see the dilemma here, and and when you translate that into millions of instances where people encounter authority or media, yeah, <laughs> the right to be forgotten is a pretty big right. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't imagine the regulators and the kind of cases that they're going to have to sift through with this. Um, so this is another interesting. We've got two more here. A really interesting one: uh, the right to challenge algorithms. So if algor- algorithms play an important role in decisions such as admission to university, those affected should have the right to challenge the decision and request human intervention. So I know we've talked about this on the show previously. Is that you have some companies that are straight up using AI to hire people. Yeah. They're not doing in-person meetings. They're taking your resume and putting it through this algorithm grinder. Yes. If your and keywords are, are, if you strike it properly. Yeah. And um, then it's, they're also using your, your LinkedIn profile, your Google search results as well. Mm-hmm. And they're simply just hiring by that, your social media presence, all this type of stuff. They don't even meet you. So this is another fascinating one because this opens up a whole door where you can say, well, I'm not good on paper, <laughs> but in person, I might be the best person for the job. Yeah. So, Or I may not have a rich social network. 
Exactly. Because I choose not to participate in it in that way. Yeah. I'm not all out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I, I get that no, too good. because I'm not on LinkedIn and I'm not on any social media. And it's like, I always wonder whether or not I'm losing some type of weight in that regard because I don't necessarily partake in that as much as the other person. But no, you're, you're overweight. We, I'm, we we've already gone there. Yeah. Put the meme out. Put put the meme article out. Going, going exactly. up on diet. I'm well, going on a diet it, after this. It's important too because there have been examples of preliminary versions of AI where it's being racist, you know, not intentionally. Yeah. But there have been flaws in the design. What was the, the was it Microsoft's Twitter bot that went on? It, uh, it was one of them. I think there have been examples too of Alexa and having Alexa, the home yeah, yeah. device sort of say things that it's not supposed to. So you can imagine too, if you're hiring their employment standards in place, you might want to make sure that, you know, that wasn't a fault of the technology that someone was hired or well, wasn't hired. I heard a great quote a couple of days ago is that if you're going to base AI on social media, you're going to have racist, misogynistic, horrible AI programs come out because it seems to bring out the worst in a lot of people. I mean, you look at the comments on YouTube, like they, they just deteriorate into yelling matches. You know, Facebook has become sort of the vacuum echo chamber. Twitter for, you know, some part of it is basically just people yelling at each other. So if we're going to start basing algorithms and artificial intelligence on, you know, the worst part of our conversing, uh, I don't know what that what that bodes for. And as we're talking about, there's a lot of personal information that's online on social media, everything yeah. from your marital status to your gender to whatever you put out there that could could be viewed by these bots. Yeah. Okay, we've got one more. The right to contest violations of rights. So each country's information rights agency will accept complaints. And if the complaints concern a company in another EU state, it will be transferred to the regulator in that country. And then final decisions taken by all the national agencies together are binding across the EU. Now, what makes this interesting is that if the complaint is in a different country, as as mentioned here, it transfers over to that set of legal systems. And I think reading between the lines and some of the articles and, and the op-eds that have been written on this is that this is the setup for having this be international. Yeah. So if something happens outside of the EU, this opens up a door potentially for that case to make its way into the EU Well, and isn't that how uh, Canadian companies are already having to pay attention to this when yeah. they're doing business with those who are in the EU mm-hmm. as it is that they have to treat that information quite carefully yeah and they uh, and they they can't they can't run afoul of what will be a regime back there and this this is forcing other major countries you look at like Asia, the Asian market, you look at the United States, you look at Canada, you look at California and its legislation with Silicon Valley. This is essentially saying we have set the tone for how we want this to be. We want it to be active consent. And now it's basically the ball is in the court of all these other areas. And I, I think, you know, a good closing statement would be I really want to watch what California does with this because <clears throat> they have a lot of power that they could wield in terms of their own legislation. Yes. They're basically their own country now. Um, you know, they have the the political might with Silicon Valley. So how the, how the, the California um, governing body responds to this will be really interesting. And the entire Facebook Cambridge Analytica episode, yeah. in as much as Cambridge Analytica was probably doing things that Facebook was permitting them to do at the time yeah, is still uh, an object lesson that, that may have turned a bit of a corner on this one for all of us. And we now, there may be now great public support 
for any regulator, any any state, any country that decides that it wants to really push into this yeah. and require corporations to act a little differently. Yeah, I think you make a great point there, Kirk. I think the tipping point has gone from us being passive consumers to saying, what are you guys doing with my data? And let me know and keep me informed. And don't just make me sign these long forms and not tell me what you're going to do with it. So... There you go. Patrick, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. BIV reporter Patrick Blenner has it. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for joining us on BIV Today. Subscribe and find our past episodes on iTunes and at BIV.com. Give us five stars on iTunes if you can. Thanks for listening. We'll be back, uh, we'll be back on Friday. 